If you have your copy of God's Word today, I would like for you to open to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, Jim preached from Isaiah 7 this morning, did a masterful job in handling the Word of God, but he preached all over the passage, I thought, uh, that I was going to preach about this morning, but he was all, all the way around it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always think about that with he and I kind of uh, rotating, um, but especially when you come to a time like Christmas, you have a limited number of Christmas passages uh, to preach from. And uh, we were very, very close this morning. If you heard his message, it's Isaiah 7. If you didn't get to hear that, you can go online later in the week and listen to his message. He just did a wonderful job. Uh, but today I'm going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. It's the third part of our series, A Lamb's Tale. And it has been said that the book of Isaiah, it is one of, if not the most important book in the Old Testament, certainly the book that gives us uh, one of the greatest prophecies of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem of any book uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, when Jim preached this morning, he talked about a controversial passage in Isaiah 7 where the Bible says that a virgin will conceive. Um, I would say that that passage is not controversial if you believe the Bible, amen? <laughs> but if you don't believe the Bible, it can be somewhat controversial. But um, Isaiah has been called a Bible within the Bible. Uh, 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, there are some who debate whether or not it is single authorship or uh, dual authorship or even three authors, as Deutero or Tritero Isaiah. We believe in the single authorship and the same theme that starts is the same theme that finishes. And the same author who begins in chapter number one who says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, is the same author who put down his pen in chapter 66. So today, as we look in Isaiah chapter number nine, uh, we're going to look at this third part of a lamb's tale. In a very familiar Christmas passage beginning in verse number six, Isaiah says this, For unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So may God add his rich blessings today to the reading of his inspired word. Roughly some 700 years before the first Christmas, God had given a promise to the prophet Isaiah that he would send a savior into the world. Now some have estimated of all the promises of God in the scripture that there are roughly 1,260 promises. Now I've heard a number of different um, calculations of promises and I don't know for sure how many there are actually in the Bible. I've heard a number of different tales. But I do know that the Bible says every promise in the word of God is true. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, For all the promises of God in him are yes. Did you hear that? All the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. So we know the promise that is before us today was a, was a promise that came to pass. Parts of it, the other part will be coming to pass later on in the future. But nonetheless, 2,000 years ago, the creator of this universe stepped out of eternity and stepped into time 
he left heaven and came to earth. He traded his throne at the right hand of God the Father for a straw mattress in Bethlehem's stable. John and John 1 said, the word was made flesh. That's the incarnation that we've been looking at for the last, last number of weeks. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It was just another night in Bethlehem. A night like many other nights before and after, but it was a baby unlike any that had ever been born or any that would ever be born since. This baby on that first Christmas morning would be God incarnate, God wrapped in human skin, God and man joined together or fused together as one, not part God and part man, but completely God, but yet at the same time, completely man. And the birth of our Savior so rocked the world that his birth split the pages of our calendar. We say now everything before his birth, we call that B.C., before Christ. Everything after his birth in the year of our Lord. No life changed the world. No birth changed the world like that of Jesus Christ. He stands alone as king of all kings and Lord of all lords. Whether the world recognizes it or not is irrelevant. Uh, Jesus is the thrice holy God of Israel who wrapped himself in human skin and was born into this world. There is an ancient proverb, not from the book of Proverbs, but just an ancient proverb in uh, secular history that says, the cloud is the promise and the rain is the fulfillment. The cloud is the promise and the rain is the fulfillment. Well, Isaiah chapter 9 is the promise, or excuse me, the cloud. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. The fulfillment is Luke chapter 2. I bring you good tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. As you look in Isaiah 9, it's important to understand a little bit of the background. Isaiah lived in the 8th century, and it was a difficult time in the history of Israel. The empire of the Assyrian kingdom was on the march. They had conquered the ten northern tribes of, of Israel, and there was nothing but what seemed to be devastation on the horizon uh, for God's people. The northern kingdom was so devastated and so dismantled that God would describe them in verse number two as a people that walked in darkness. Do you see that? Also, if you look in verse number two, he says they dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Now, that would be a very, um, a very difficult time in which to live, wouldn't you think? That the Bible would describe as your season of life as people who walked in darkness. That the Bible would describe your season as li of life as people who dwell in the shadow of death. Here we are thousands of years later. And we think about what we're dealing with with the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the hundreds of thousands of people now all around the world that have died as a result of COVID. And it seems to be continually getting worse and not better. And we look at all the changes that's taken place and all, the, all of the concessions that we've had to make as a church family and as individuals in order to navigate our way through this uh, pandemic over the course of the year. Tina and I were talking about it earlier this week. As a church family, 
We didn't have a, an Easter sunrise service this year or an Easter breakfast like we normally have. We didn't have an Easter egg hunt for the children. No vacation Bible school. We didn't have children's camp or we didn't have youth camp. Um, many of the activities that we're part of regularly, we've had to say, no, we've got to wait for a little while longer. No regular Bible studies on Wednesday nights for us. No regular services on Sunday nights. Now, I know that our youth still meet and praise God for the faithfulness of our youth workers who regularly love and care for our teenagers, for our WANA that still meets virtually. Praise the Lord for those. But we've all had to make some changes that have been very uncomfortable. No Easter cantata, no Christmas cantata. I think it's the first time in, in my Christian life that I've not been part of or pastored a church where we've had a Christmas program. And I miss all of that. But in spite of all the changes that we've had to make, we may feel like we are people who've walked in darkness or living in the shadow of death. I want you to know that God has been faithful every step of the way. Has he not? Amen. He has been faithful. He has been true. He has been right there with us every step of the way. And if all of the activities cease from now on, God is still on his throne in glory. God is still in control and he still holds the whole world in his hand. Well, that was the message for the Assyrians, the people who lived in darkness the people to whom the shadow of death has fallen upon them. It was a dark day, a demoralizing day, a depressing day, a discouraging day when this prophecy was given some 700 years before Jesus was born. But there seemed to be a ray of hope on the horizon because God had told Isaiah that a boy would be born. A baby would be born, Hezekiah, and this new king would offer a great hope to the nation. Now, there are those uh, who look at Scripture and, and interpret it. Uh, some, some for uh, the passages that, that they read would be just that prophecy for that time. And many liberal theologians would say that all Isaiah chapter 9 is referring to is the birth of Hezekiah, a new king who's going to help lead Israel out from under Assyrian bondage. But of course, you and I know that although that was, the, that was the historical context of that day, it also pointed to the great time in the future when God would indeed step out of heaven and step into this world, and he would be surrounded by those wise men who would come and bring gifts for a king, gold, a, a, a gift for a king, um, frankincense, these spices for a king, myrrh, something that would uh, be used as an embalming fluid or used to anoint the, the body of royalty of a king. So we know that this prophecy, yes, was partially fulfilled in the birth of Hezekiah, the king of Israel, but ultimately fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 9 is kind of inspiration for the entire uh, concept of the messianic arrival of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, the Bible gives the account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You remember when Satan uh, came to him after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread if you're really the son of God. 
Of course, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't succumb to the temptation of Satan. He defeated him with scripture, and Satan only came back another time, and he said, if you're really the son of God, then jump off this temple and see if God doesn't take care of you. Again, Jesus defeats him with scripture, and then a third time the devil says, if you're really the son of God, bow down and worship me. And again, Jesus defeated him with scripture. All of his life, uh, as, as, as Jesus was tempted, he always rose above every temptation. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew reaches back to this Old Testament passage in Isaiah 9. And listen to what Matthew says. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That the people, now listen, that sat in darkness saw a great light. You find that in verse number 2. A great light to them which sat on the region and the shadow of death, light has sprung up. So for Israel's day, it would be Hezekiah that he would come and help restore Israel to its former glory. But it would point to a day much greater than what Hezekiah would ever see. Isaiah gives a series of promises that will happen someday. And as he gives these prophecies or these promises, they are spoken in what we call the prophetic perfect tense. Now what that means is when God speaks a word of prophecy in the scripture, something that is still to come to pass in the future, it is so sure that it is going to come to pass that he uses past tense to say it's just as sure in the mind of God that it's going to come to pass as if it's already taken place. So when you read these prophecies or these promises from God, you read it, and again, it, it is that prophetic, perfect tense that they're so sure that they will happen in the mind of God, it's as if they have already happened. Now go back to verse number two and notice again that phrase, the people that walked in darkness. They were under the boot of the Assyrian Empire. But look at the promise. They've seen a great light in their day, Hezekiah. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them a light had shined. Now the northern kingdom of Israel had been roughly obliterated when the Assyrian army came in, and it was a dark day for them. God may allow dark days in all of our lives. He may allow a dark day in your life, a dark season in your life. You might be in it right now, and you say, Pastor Darrell, you just don't know. You just don't know how dark this season of my life has been for the last little while. Sometimes those seasons are short-lived, a day, two or three days. Sometimes those seasons are months. Sometimes those seasons could be even years. But God allows us sometimes to experience those times of darkness. Those times of darkness and those times of uncertainty. But if I could say anything to you today that I wouldn't want you to forget, listen, it is in those times of darkness, just wait on God and just give God time to work. Just give him time to show you what he wants to do and what he's up to in your life. Sometimes people give up on God way too early. And if you ever give up on God, it's way too early. Amen? But sometimes people just throw in the towel. Don't do that. The Bible says, listen, they that wait upon the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So give God time to work. It might be dark in your life right now, and you don't know what's going to happen with COVID. You don't know what's going to happen with your job. You don't know what's going to happen maybe with your children or with your relationships, with your finances, or with your health, and it may seem to be a dark time. Just walk with God. Trust Him. Give Him time. Look to Him. Walk with Him. Listen, He's called Emmanuel for a reason. That is God with us. And as these northern kingdoms of Israel were going through a dark time, a time described as the land of the shadow of death, more than anything that they needed in all of life, was Emmanuel, God to come and walk with them. The devastation that was brought to bear on Israel by the Assyrians had almost decimated the population of Israel. But if you will note in verse number three, God says through the pen of Isaiah that he has multiplied the nation. Now it's certainly a, a reference to a future reign of the Lord Jesus when he's going to sit on the throne of David and there's going to be peace on this earth. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, the Bible says. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said, now remember, it was the darkest time of his life. It was the time where he knew as he would go to the cross that his father would turn his back on him. That those that he had ministered to over the course of his 33 and a half years all would desert him. But the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, These things have I spoken to you, that your joy might remain in you. That your joy might be full. What is your joy like today? Pastor Darrell, this will be the first Christmas since my father passed away. Or Pastor Darrell, this will be the first Christmas since my, my, my mother passed away. Pastor Darrell, this will be the first Christmas that I have to go through since my spouse has left me or passed away. And you feel that lonely ache in your heart. And you too feel like you're walking in the shadow of death. Like you're living in a time of just immense darkness and you just don't know which way you're going to turn. Like Israel, oppressed from all sides. Like Israel, in bondage to fear. But listen, if you'll wait on God and if you'll trust God and let him fulfill the promises that he's made in your life, then just like these ancient Hebrews in verses 2 and 3, your, lightness, your darkness will turn to light. Your death will turn to life. The times that you felt like you have no hope whatsoever. The Bible says weeping endures for a night. But listen, aren't you glad that joy comes in the morning? Amen? Joy comes in the morning. And it's not always going to be dark. It's not always going to be discouraging. It's not always going to be depressing because we know who's on the throne. So God makes this incredible promise through the pen of Isaiah. Go down to verse number six and look at what he says. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now when was this child born? In the worst of the worst times, dark times, 
the shadow of death. Notice a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and then he lists a series of titles or names that will be attributed to this baby that will begin to unwrap in just a little while. But notice, notice uh, the Bible says in verse number seven, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Meaning that when this child is born, that he will, he will have a kingdom and he will have a throne that will be eternal. Every king that's ever reigned, reigned on a temporary throne, reigned for a finite period of time. But there will be one who will reign in the future, who will have an eternal throne. And that is this incarnate God, the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says he will rule and reign forever and forever, and forever. So we wait on him, and we know, we know that our darkness will turn to light. Go back to verse number six, and look at this phrase where the Bible says, the government will be on his shoulder. Look at that word shoulder. In the Hebrew, it's the word shechem. And it literally means the place right between the shoulder blades. And here is the picture. It is the picture of someone carrying a heavy load. Someone carrying a burden. Someone carrying a great weight. And the Bible says this child that is born, this son that is given, he will carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. You think about it. When he was born, the Roman government hated him, sought to kill him. When he lived, the Jewish government hated him and sought to kill him. And ultimately, with a combination of both, they did succeed in taking his life, or at least serving as the executioners. They didn't take his life. He gave it. But they certainly uh, played the part of the executioner. But you see, this little child, this baby, would carry the weight of the government. That word translated government, this is the only time it's found here in this particular prophecy. It prophecy it's the only time it's found, and it, it, it means responsibility. That the responsibility of the world would be upon the shoulders of a little child that would be given, of a little baby that would be born. Now listen, that's a, that's a, that's a big demand, isn't it? Most of us as parents, what we want to do is we want to take the pain away from our children. We want to take the suffering away from them. We want to protect them in such a fashion that they never experience any disappointments or any trouble. We want to be there to rescue them from any kind of struggles that they might have in life. But this particular child that would be born, this particular son that would be given, would carry the weight and the responsibility of going to the cross and bearing the sin debt for every person who's ever lived. My sin nailed him to the cross. And your sin nailed him to the cross. The sin of the world, as he carried that load to Calvary, and finally said, it is finished. Not his life was finished. But the debt had been paid, the load had been borne, the sin debt 
had been paid, and in the ledger of our life written in red is the word paid in full because this child that was given and this son that was given had broad enough shoulders to carry the weight of the world. It has been said that the manger should be the most hopeful place in the world. And isn't that true? I think about, you know, when Jesus is born, that you come to the manger and you look into the face of this newborn king, that it may not take away all the hurt that your emotions feel for a particular disappointment in life. It may not even take away all of the fear that you, we sometimes hold on to in our lives. But I want you to know right here in the manger is the hope for all of the world for all eternity. And as we cast our care on him, knowing that he cares for us, we take what this little baby did in Bethlehem and accept him as God's gift to us, wrapped in swaddling clothes that he would give to this world. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. The child that was given, the son that was born, was God in the flesh. J.B. Phillips He's an old English, um, uh, not really that old, uh, passed away a few years ago, but he was um, elderly and a great um, writer. I have some of his books in my office, a great commentator. He says this, the great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity without either discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. There is none to rival Jesus. Who else is like him? He is the God-man. As a man, he had to pay taxes. As God, he paid them with a coin from the mouth of a fish. As a man, he had to eat food. As God, he took the loaves and fish and multiplied them to feed over 5,000. The little baby of Luke 2 is the creator God in Genesis chapter 1. End of quote. So unto us, a child is born, a son is given. And then there's a list of titles or names that is given for this child. You may want to circle these. Go back to verse number six and notice what he says. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Now, some translations, if you use King James, New King James, I believe New King James, you will see a comma after the word wonderful. Some translations, you do not see the comma, uh, and, and translators say that that is one name, wonderful counselor. I kind of beg to differ with that because I believe there's truth in both of those names. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, no doubt about that. But I believe each of those titles stand alone that he in, in of himself is wonderful. And then secondly, he is counselor. So when the Bible describes him as wonderful, he is so wonderful. Listen, he is the only person ever born of a virgin. Many years ago, or a number of years ago, um, I was in Russia on a mission trip and had an opportunity to go down the Volga River from St. Petersburg, Russia, all the way into Moscow and uh, share the gospel with people up and down the Volga River. And we concluded our trip in Moscow by a visit to Red Square. 
And there at Red Square, I wanted to see the tomb of Lenin. And Lenin is one of the most famous people in all of the history of the Russian people. The day I was there, they had his tomb closed. And normally there's long lines that wrap all around it. And you can go in and you can visit the body of Lenin. It's in a glass coffin. And for all of these years, they have preserved his body. Every now and again, they take it out and they clean it. And, and they freshen his body up and put it back in that glass coffin for all the people to see. I, I always say because you, you never want to air your dirty linen, right? So they, they freshen it up, they clean it up, put it back on display so you can come by to see it. And in the minds of the Russian people, perhaps no one is greater than linen. And you look at, though he was not necessarily a religious leader, he was certainly atheistic in his thinking. But you look around the world at other leaders that people would call great. Every one of them had a natural birth with the union of a man and a woman. Every one of them experienced the aging process and they ultimately succumbed to death. Only Jesus is so wonderful that the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she was able to conceive without the natural use of a man. And Jesus' bloodline did not come from Adam, but it came from God the Father. That's why he was able to shed his blood and that blood wash away all of our sins because it's the only perfect, wonderful blood that's ever coursed through the veins of mankind. So he was wonderful in his birth. He was wonderful in his life. In fact, so wonderful when he entered the boat on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples during an angry storm, he stood and he calmed the storm when he spoke. And the disciples looked at each other and they said, What manner of man is this? And literally in the Greek it means this man is out of this world. He's out of this world. And isn't that true? He is wonderful. He came from another world as he left heaven and stepped into this world to bring light to our darkened situations. But notice the Bible also says that his name is Counselor. He's wonderful, yes. But he's Counselor, yes. Now listen. Whenever the Lord speaks, it is always truth. Don't ever doubt his word. Don't ever doubt the truthfulness of his word, the veracity of scripture. Don't ever doubt that God loves you or that he cares for you. Or what he said is anything but 100% truth. He is a wonderful counselor. And everything that he says is true. Whatever he advises, he has in mind your good and his glory. Whatever he reveals is convicting and instructive. Whatever he commands is always perfect and complete. Listen, he is the wonderful counselor, meaning that he is infinitely wise. I mentioned to you last Sunday as we were moving through um, the uh, Proto-Evangelion in Genesis chapter 3, uh, talked about the attributes of God and that he was omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. And all of that is found um, in Christ as the wonderful counselor. Because think about it, there's benefit to go to counselors who can help us talk through issues in life? Sure, there's great benefit as long as they look at life through a Christian perspective. There's benefit from that, and it can be helpful to us sometimes. But there's never a counselor who knows everything about every situation. 
But listen, Jesus knows everything about every situation in life. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. You see, you and I, we only see a little part of the parade, if you will. But the Lord looks down from glory. He sees the beginning from the end. That's why he's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And he knows how it's all going to unfold and unravel. And that's why he is the counselor who is all-knowing. He is also omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. I might be limited in, in, in my ability to minister to you. In fact, I've mentioned it many times. It's one of the most frustrating times of my ministry uh, because I want to see our folk when they're hurting. I want to be there during times of crises. I want to go to the hospitals, and I want to be able to counsel. And sometimes you can't get close to people because of COVID-19. But I want you to know that there'll never be a time if you call on God that he won't be close to you. The Bible says, draw nigh to him, and he'll draw nigh to you. He is the wonderful counselor. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Listen, he is omnipresent, always with you. And he is uh, omnipotent, all-powerful. So, wonderful, yes. Counselor, yes. Look at this next title, the mighty God. And really, it's one of the most powerful lessons on the deity of Christ that you find in the Bible. Look at the word mighty. It's the Hebrew word gabor. So when you see the word mighty God, God is the word El, El Gabor. You see that used a number of times in the scriptures. Uh, so the Bible says this child that will be born, this son that will be given, his name is El Gabor, God Almighty. Let me give you a couple of references. Moses said, Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords. Now listen, a great God, mighty that's Gabor. Now, who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about a child that'll be born. He's talking about a son that's going to be given. But he said he is El Gabor. He is the almighty God. Jeremiah 32, the great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. So from the words of Moses, then from the words of, of Jeremiah, they knew that God's name is great, that God's name is mighty. And now all of a sudden through the pen of Isaiah the prophet, he says this child that will be given, the son that will be born, is going to be the great and mighty God. That's the incarnation. Psalm 24, David said, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. So the child that was born, the son that was given, was not just a gracious teacher, but was almighty God. Not just a good man, but almighty God. Not just a prophet, but almighty God. And then look at the next title very quickly. He calls him the everlasting father. In the Jewish mind, father is the word uh, originator or source or creator, if you will. So this little baby is the source, the originator of all that there is, the everlasting Father. We always have to keep in the forefront of our mind when we come to Christmas that Jesus did not just come into existence in Bethlehem. He has always existed. He was always one with the Father. He just simply stepped out of heaven and put on human skin in Bethlehem on that first Christmas morning. So when we come to adore him at the manger scene, we are really worshiping 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He had no beginning, and he has no end. Thank God for that. There's never been a time when Jesus wasn't, and there will never be a time when he ceases to be. He is the everlasting Father. And then finally, look at the next title, the Prince of Peace. His birth still did not bring peace. And there will be no peace until once and for all he rules and reigns in Jerusalem after the second coming of Christ. But Billy Graham in his book, with God, Peace with God, says this, that when Jesus came, he gives us, first of all, peace with God. Meaning that this child that was born, the son that was given, bore the sin debt of the world, took my sins so that you and I could have his righteousness, and he reconciled us to God. In fact, that's what the Bible says about Jesus, that he was in this world reconciling the world to God. In other words, bringing peace between us and God. Only way you can ever have peace is to know your creator. But Dr. Graham also says that he brings peace with ourselves. You can never find peace in a bottle of alcohol. You never find peace in a bottle of pills. You never find peace in the world's pleasures. You only find peace, inner peace, when you let the Prince of Peace reign in your heart and your life. And then he also finally concludes by saying you have peace with each other. We know that we have passed, the Bible says, from death into life because we love the brethren. And there is peace on the inside Peace with God and peace with one another. Listen, this child that was born, this son was given. His name is Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. And notice how he concludes, or I'm going to conclude with this. The increase of his government and his peace. There shall be no end. Amen? That it'll be eternal kingdom established forever and ever and ever. No, no decision is more important than to open your heart and your life and invite Christ, this wonderful counselor, this prince of peace, to come into your life and give you the joy of Christmas. If you've never done that, as we have this invitation, I'm simply going to invite you to do that. You just come and say, Pastor Darrell, I want to be saved today. And the Bible says that he is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Or maybe you want to come and unite with our church family, or you just want to come and pray. If you have a need in your life, I invite you to come as we pray together. Lord, thank you for the greatest Christmas gift that could be given, this wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Thank you, Lord, for the difference that he makes in our lives and that you make. And God, as we come to this time where we make the appeal and we invite folk, Lord, just to respond as you call them. If there's anyone under the sound of my voice today that needs to make that life-changing eternal decision, then I pray that right here, right now, right this moment, that they would come and ask Jesus to be their personal Savior. Young or old, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So take the invitation and use it as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.